About 12% of women in the United States will experience invasive breast cancer in their lifetime. That's one out of every eight women. Today we are dedicating this episode to exploring complementary treatment options and consider what additional support for a breast cancer patient could include. Breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery. That's our topic here today in this hour of an organic conversation. Your show on everything that makes life worth living. I am Helge Helberg. While early detection and refined medical treatments have increased the chance of survival, breast cancer is still the second most common cause of death from cancer among black, white, and Asian women, and the number one cause of death from cancer among Hispanic women. There is still a fairly great uncertainty as to what exactly causes breast cancer. From things that can be influenced, such as lifestyle, cosmetic use, diet, and alcohol consumption, to things that cannot be influenced, such as higher age and a family history with breast cancer, the exact causes or the exact combination of causes that may result in breast cancer expressing itself are still being researched. Regardless, over a quarter million women will get diagnosed with invasive breast cancer this year alone. And with that diagnosis, a long and difficult road to recovery begins. Today we are speaking with an expert about complementary treatment options and consider what additional support for a breast cancer patient may look like. Breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. All that and more coming up in just a minute. I'm Helge Helberg. And this show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery. That's our main focus in this hour here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our focus in this hour of an organic conversation is breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery. About 12% of women in the United States will experience invasive breast cancer in their lifetime. That's one out of every eight women. Today, we are dedicating this episode to exploring complementary treatment options and consider what additional support for a breast cancer patient may include. And on the phone with me now is Dr. Holly Lucille, naturopathic doctor who is joining me today from Los Angeles. The website is drhollylucille.com. And of course, she is a nationally recognized and licensed naturopathic doctor, educator, and television, as well as radio host. Um, Holly, do we have you on the line? Hey, I'm right here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's a super serious topic, invasive breast cancer. 12% of women in the United States will experience that in their lifetime. That's one out of eight women. And while early detection and refined medical treatments have increased the chance of survival. Breast cancer is still the second most common cause of death from cancer among black, white, and Asian women, and the number one cause of death from cancer among Hispanic women. So thank you for making the time to really focus on that in this hour of an organic conversation, breast cancer, natural medicine, on the road to recovery. But I do want to start with your background. You have a beautiful uh, sentiment on your website. As a naturopathic doctor, you believe in the science, art, and mystery of healing. Can you explain what that means? Sure. I think so. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I love being a scientist and I, I love my education. I like staying up on the research. Um, but I think with my experience with people and this, you know, this world and, and everybody as an individual, um, I certainly respect the data uh, and it's very important to me. But I also respect people's experiences and their beliefs. And I think that especially something, you know, as daunting as, as a cancer diagnosis or what have you, there's a lot of different things to consider. And so the, the mystery is there because I think you always need to be emptying your cup and um, allowing for the magic of somebody's life and their their thoughts and their beliefs and prayer and, you know, different things that we might not have studied in the, in the literature. It's not there. It's not, not, not def, you know, it, you know d- definitive data, mm-hmm. but it's somebody's experience. And I, I think that's what's really important. Um, and, you know, I think that the art is that, you know, everybody that I see who might have been uh, diagnosed with breast cancer or with anything else, it's just different the way that we go about approaching their recovery together because they're different, right? And so I think it's the, the art of medicine. It's the art of being able to understand how people have the ability to um, adhere to something. You know, I think there's a difference between compliance and adherence when it comes to recommendations. I think compliance is like, okay, Dr. Lucille told me to do that. Adherence is a faithful attachment to something. And I think that's where I like people to get, where they truly understand, not because they have the information that I provided for them, but they, they, they grok it. They have the understanding that if I avoid this, uh, and this is why I'm doing that, or, you know, when I take this, this is why I'm doing it. This is the outcome. But they're fully engaged in the program. And so that's that's sort of what I mean by that. You know, it's not this dogma that I have or a protocol necessarily. It's really about the beauty of everybody being an individual and me being able to be disciplined enough to empty my cup and meet everybody where they are when they come in my office. And you're making a really great point with science. It is 
as with everything in life, uh, yin and yang, good and bad, black and white, uh, science is leading us and it is also always catching up. It's always uncovering what we didn't know before, right? So in a way, even though it is an important and often critical piece of information, it was already true 10 years prior, we just didn't know about it. As we are uh, including science, you're saying there's something as true, which is what science has not maybe studied yet, to just not take science as the one and only and ultimate and, and always working. We're not a statistic, right? It's the other part. We're um, The biochemical individuality that we all have and are, uh, you as a naturopathic doctor, that's really one of your biggest focuses, right? Compared, especially compared to Western medicine, you look at the individual, what really, not at the treatment first, but at as the individual. Is that too much of an overstatement? No, I think you're spot on. That's exactly, exactly it. So what has drawn you to this field of integrative medicine? How did you, how did you get you know, your toes You know, I grew up the daughter of two pharmacists, and I think that might have just did it. <laughs> you know, I, I and I, I've always said, and it feels to me very much like I was meant to think this way, and it was really all about how I was able to use my mind because, you know, not only did I question my parents' approach to health, uh, here, take this, here, take this, here, take this, I always was very stubborn and I wanted to know why. And then I got into the conventional nursing, my bachelor's degree in nursing, and I kind of had the same uh, attitude with my instructors because I always just felt like there were more comprehensive questions you could be asking. There was a better way to get to thinking things through or identifying and treating the cause, but it never, that philosophy was never really, I never came in contact with that philosophy to put a name to it until I actually accidentally got into the American Holistic Nursing Association. And so that's where I was like, oh, it's not the education that I have, it's how I can apply it. And through the American Holistic Nursing Association, I found out about naturopathic medicine and that was my next natural step for the most part. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, the focus is the human, right? And so often in Western medicine, the focus is the treatment. We are speaking with Dr. Holly Lucille, naturopathic doctor who's joining us today from Los Angeles, drhollylucille.com, her website. Um, and as a naturopathic doctor, we're looking at breast cancer in this hour of an organic conversation, natural medicine on the road to recovery what alternative treatment options or complementary treatment options are out there and what else to consider as additional support for a breast cancer patient. I'm Helga Helberg. Holly, when you you are working with patients on any condition they may experience, on any illness, as a naturopathic doctor, there's no, you don't say these are my two specialties. It's really, you have patients like any other doctor. Is that is that correct? You know, it really is for me now. Even though my profession has uh, done some specialization, pediatrics, oncology, I have, uh, et cetera, I have chosen to, to really practice in a family medicine style where I count very much on the principles of naturopathic medicine to guide my thinking and my approach to anything that walks in the door. What attracted you? Like, what what is your understanding of breast cancer? How do you see and understand breast cancer today? How do you work with that um, as a as a philosophy? You know, well, I think for the most part, once again, you know, it's like it's a daunting diagnosis, yes. and I think that you know, in in general, it's like we look at hey, what is cancer in general, right? Um, this, this uncontrolled division of abnormal cells can start with a normal cell and then it goes to sort of this hyperplasia and then into, 
you know, a polyp perhaps, and then it's getting growing bigger and getting fed. And and I I always think about what is the what's the story behind the tumor? What's the story behind the tissue? And there are definitely in our modern day major influences on breast cancer risk that I think are modifiable. And those are some of the things that are are really getting my attention. You know, I mean, first of all, having one first degree family member, okay, a mother, for example doubles your risk of breast cancer. Um, having two or more first-degree relatives, so let's say a mother and a sister, uh, increases risk by three to four times. One of the things having the BRCA, one or two genetic mutation, is definitely associated with 85% risk of breast cancer, so that's sometimes important information for folks. But the things that I'm talking about, like uh, environmental exposure, so women when they're exposed to certain toxins before a first pregnancy, have it over 40% increased risk of breast cancer smoking increases the risk of breast cancer over 20%. Uh, high levels of processed sugar increases uh, breast cancer risk. Be- actually beginning menstruation before the age of 12, which I'm seeing that over and over and over again with young girls, um, increases risk of breast cancer by about 30%. But for me, I'm mostly seeing in my practice, when we look at the story, nutritional deficiencies, exposure to environmental toxins, uh, inflammation imbalances, uh, estrogen stimulation, whether it's from our xenoestrogens or our own body's inability to detoxify our estrogens, and really a, a resultant breakdown in genetic integrity and immune surveillance. And so it's that whole picture, again, that I like to look at. And, and it, it kind of, when I did some research, it startled me to read that, of course, a family history, but they must have, at one point, that family lineage, somebody was first. And why why did they develop breast cancer, Right. Uh, somebody must have started. So, okay, you're, you're, if your mother has breast cancer, your risk clearly increases. But the question is then, why did your mother get an expression of breast cancer? And I do want to call it expression. Um, we had a show a few weeks back where a doctor was saying that we all have viruses or definitely uh, cancer genes in our in our bodies. The, the only question is, will they express themselves in our lifetimes? Yeah. Do, do you agree with that? I do. I absolutely do. And I think that's where we lead to some of our controversies regarding screening, because if we, if we think about the body doing its job and we go for early detection and sometimes early treatment, maybe it's unnecessary treatment um, because the body was going to deal with that and manage that. Um, you know, there's this whole new field of uh, epigenetics mm-hmm. that is really kind of, I think, up and coming where we're understanding, no, we can't change our DNA, but we can change the phenotypic expression of it, right? How it expresses itself, just like you're saying. And I think nutrition and and, and nutrigenomics has a lot to do with being able to help the phenotypic expression of some genes um, when we know about them. And so, but I I definitely believe that, yes. Great. And we want to dive into that. Um, Let's start with the the illness itself. What different forms of breast cancer are there, or is there only one or two um, that are in the category of, of invasive breast cancer that, that are most commonly seen in your experience? Oh, there's many different forms, yeah. And once again, that's all, it's, it's so broad and individual, and so, but that's a, a good thing to understand because I think that when you look at it, you know, um, uh, you know there's a hormone connection. We can, we can talk about that as well. Breast cancer cells can, you know, also have receptors for progesterone and uh, the human epidermal growth factor receptor. That's the HER2, right? And so estrogen receptor positive cancer is usually treated with 
tamoxifen, but only 50% of all breast cancers fail to respond to tamoxifen, and so there's that that estrogen receptor positive too, so we think about that hormone connection. There's all sorts of different kinds of of breast cancer, and and understanding what kind also gives us sort of a, a clue into the story of the tissue and therefore you know, more of the story about what happened. I care little sometimes about diagnosis, I always say, but more about the mechanism behind the diagnosis. You know, thinking about what started stimulating those cells to to grow. And so all important part of that first diagnosis and understanding, because I think it also, it also directs treatment in a sense. How would you go about that? If, if somebody came in and, and says, I was just diagnosed, or if you had to diagnose them, unfortunately, how do you, what is the, what are the first steps? What, what fear is inevitable in a way? And what fear may we be able to take away by saying there is a mechanism behind it? And there's lots yeah. that can be done, especially depending on the age of the, of the cancer cell. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, all of that soothing and, and just the, um, making sure that the person feels safe and that, hey, it's kind of like algorithm thinking at that time. And of course, I'm going to partner. I am not an oncologist, and I think that's, I, I need to say that very clearly. And so we're partnering as a team. Sure. Um, and I'm, I, and you know, and I think that's very important, you know, uh, to, I, I think one of the most important things is for the person who has been diagnosed to really be informed about options and to slow down enough to get informed and also get second opinions when they feel like they need them. Um, that is it. So I partner hard with the oncologist if there's a biopsy that's needed so we can understand the grade of the cancer, um, so we can understand, hey, is there conventional treatments like uh, chemotherapies and radiation that are necessary, or can I refer them to an oncology specialist um, You know, all the, it's all, and the algorithm thinking is let's find out this information first. And then, you know, we, we my, one of my biggest jobs, uh, even though I've got some great natural interventions for breast cancer, is to help slow that person down to get completely informed. You know, we kind of take care of the family as well because cancer in and of itself is extremely scary. Um, and I think that that's just really a, a, a very, very, very important part. Great. Dr. Holly Lucille, please stay on the line for just a minute. We'll take a quick break. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. We're speaking with Dr. Holly Lucille, naturopathic doctor, who's joining us today from Los Angeles in this hour of an organic conversation on breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery, either as an alternative or complementary treatment option, including all the support that a cancer patient can get. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And a thank you to our underwriters. This show is brought to you by Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. Thank you. 
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. From things that can be influenced, such as lifestyle, cosmetic use, diet, and alcohol consumption, to things that cannot be influenced, such as higher age and a family history with breast cancer, our topic is natural medicine on the road to recovery for breast cancer patients. About 12% of women in the United States will experience invasive breast cancer in their lifetime and what can be done. We're speaking with Dr. Holly Lucille today. She's a naturopathic doctor, author of several books and a radio and TV personality on the topic of integrated medicine. So once it's established what it is and you're going through lifestyle, diet, stress, uh, stressors, stress reduction, are you complementing or supplementing the road to recovery with natural holistic complementary treatments or is it an, is it an alternative to oh, Western no, medicine? Oh, no, I think one of the, this is one of the coolest places that I think uh, <laughs> naturopathic medicine has the ability to complement if we have patients that are choosing conventional cancer treatments like, like uh, chemotherapy and radiation. Hmm. Natural medicine does such a great job at, one, being able to maybe augment so we, we are able to use lower doses um, having the treatment be more effective, and of course, each and every treatment is different. And it's important to, I think, partner with somebody who knows what they're doing because the thing that I've seen that I all, I want to I want to ward against on both ends is whether it's um, an, a, a conventional oncologist that doesn't know anything about evidence-based natural substances like curcumin, vitamin D, green tea, etc., will say to their patient just don't take anything. And they're doing that simply because they don't know the contraindications or the indications, right? And then on the other side, sometimes I see maybe non-licensed, more natural-minded folks that will read something on the internet that thinks that, hey, this is good to take when you have cancer, but they don't take into consideration the chemotherapeutic agent that they're on. And so it might be contraindicated with that chemotherapeutic agent. And so It's really, really important. There is, you know, there's a website called the ANC, A-A-N-P, the ANC, A-N-P, I should say, it's O-N-C, um, A-N-P.org, and it is a, it's a specialty of naturopathic oncologists who uh, has, they do this as their wheelhouse. But, you know, there are things across the board from an evidence perspective, like curcumin, I can't, I can't say enough about as far as the studies, curcumin stops breast cancer cell replication. There, there's been studies with that. Curcumin slows the growth of breast cancer tumors. They had another study, curcumin, estrogen in the liver. Actually, curcumin has the ability to reduce estradiol. That's the form of estrogen by 22% reduction. And it can also block the estrogen mimickers. Those are that plastics and pesticides and car exhaust and smokes, you know, and emulsifiers and, and all of those things that we have in our modern day that we're exposed to on a daily basis. Increases liver function, which is extremely important in potentially detoxifying harmful compounds, including xenoestrogens. You know, our, our body kind of looks at estrogens. And curcumin, I just honestly, is probably one of those, those things that I use all the time when it comes to this diagnosis. There's lifestyle. You look at that and you reduce oh. unhealthy aspects. There's other parts of lifestyle that you may introduce, like from meditation to yoga sure. to what I, we will talk about that. And then there's nutrition. Let's talk. We talked a little bit about the the stressors. So literally, stress reduction, um, exposure to environmental toxins, uh, unclean water sources. 
what other areas are there just as a brush stroke for people to consider um, air pollution? You mentioned the exhaust in, in planes. What are some of them where you would say we need to eliminate those or we need to take those out? Well, I think that, you know, one of my most important, I, I actually have a, I have a woman in my, who's very active in my practice right now, diagnosed with breast cancer, and she, she's always come to me sort of as a, on a yearly basis. Uh, she's older, she's retired, but I've kind of been her quarterback, and she had a little suspect. We got it checked out, definitely breast cancer, and when she came in, her weight was creeping up, and, uh, and uh, her, some of her markers from a cardiovascular and her her inflammatory markers were creeping up, and I was still asking her, and since her breast cancer diagnosis, because we got, you know, real clean on eating, I think that one of the most important things is to decrease exposure of, of toxins wherever you can, and of course, organic as much as possible. Take a look inside your household, your cosmetics, the things, your health and beauty aids, the things that you're putting on your skin. You know, I use the reference of ewg.org, that's environmentalworkinggroup.org. They have the clean feet, the yes. clean 15 and the dirty dozen when it comes to organic produce. Um, mm-hmm. produce, yeah. And then they also have the cosmetic database. And so I use that as a resource for my patients. And I think that's very helpful. So the message is, of course, reducing exposure. We, there's so many things that I think we don't have real control over, but the things that we do have control over. So honestly, even though she's walking around with, you know, breast cancer, she's healthier <laughs> in this day and age. And she has been in many, many years because she you know, she took the hint and she started to, and she's, you know, 29 pounds down and she's looking great and she's feeling great. And so it definitely is a wake up call for folks, but she started to, you know, that knocked off the ice cream at night, decreased the sugar intake for sure. She started to exercise way beyond her occasional walking of the dog. And so her lifestyle has increased, her exposure to toxins has decreased. And I think that her outcomes are going to be better for it. How about stressors, like a, a constantly stressful situation at, in yeah. in a private marriage or or at work? Sure. Um, does that do you see well, that that reduces the immune function at least? Yes, of course. I think that you've got stress induced nutrient depletion. I think that it, hmm. you have stress induced immunocompromisation, so uh, an imbalance in the, that you know immunoprotection, which is what we need exactly to take care of those little cancer cells that pop in each and every day, and so. It, you know, it's hard to say, like, what's number one, but that's definitely, that is absolutely 100% up there. Uh, stress modification, stress awareness, I think. People, I think, at this day and age don't even really understand what stress is anymore because we don't even have the luxury of being in danger. You know, we don't, like, bears not coming or the locusts are not going to, you know, eat up our crops. It's literally that we are... Um, having confounded and compounded stressors throughout, you know, time that we just are sort of in a sympathetic loop. And we, and so the parasympathetic is the opposite of that fight or flight. It's where you rest, relax and repair. And you certainly need to be there to heal and help heal from cancer. And so for everybody, once again, it's different for me, you know, anytime I can be outside or in the wilderness or even here in Los Angeles, you know, looking at a squirrel that's on the wire, or you know, um, walking my dog, But, you know, sometimes for people it's taking a bath, sometimes it's reading. But what I encourage people to do is to be consistent with that parasympathetic activity, as much of it as possible. But I think if you're consistent on a daily basis, you stop the getting up with your, you know, your phone and going to bed with a glass of wine. You stop that process, that vicious cycle, and you actually start to connect with yourself a little bit more. And I think it's really important. 
Nice, including, of course, the right amount of sleep and good sleep. Um, yeah. When we come to nutrition, we have many shows throughout the year on optimal nutrition, plant-based, most unadulterated, whatever that means for the individual, staying as much away from, from fatty, animal, high-processed foods uh, as possible. But you, you mentioned curcumin. What other nutrient advice do you feel is al almost always appropriate to give? Yeah, so that I definitely, um, vitamin D, uh, extremely important. It's associated with um, breast cancer survival risk. And, you know, I like to talk about vitamin D, not just getting vitamin D up to one click above rickets, which I see a lot, but really optimizing vitamin D. And I like that to be about, you know, in the level of 60 to 80. 60 to 80, what? Eight, yep, nanograms per deciliter. So that, uh -huh. so you see that on Great. the lab test. I do test for vitamin D, and that's so D3, and I like to recover that. Um, pomegranate, actually, uh, there, you know, people, a lot of people don't understand that it is, it's rich in a compound called polyphenols, which I'm sure your listeners are, are aware of, plus an omega-5, which is a punicic acid. Anti-aromatase activity, right? So this is uh, an enzyme that increases estrogen. It's anti-inflammatory, and it increases cancer cell death and stops the spread of cancer. So there's some nice studies on pomegranate, quite honestly. Grapeseed extract. There's, uh, there's once again, when we, when we hit the research, there's been, it's another really lovely natural ingredient to inhibit aromatase. And those beneficial compounds in grapeseed are the oligomeric proanthocyanins. And I always ask people to look for that French grapeseed, which is standardized to those, those OPCs that I just mentioned, and that they're tannin-free. Um, and so I've really had some... Those four things are always sort of in my, my tool chest when it comes to a breast cancer diagnosis. And what are the, the common ones for people to cut out? You mentioned alcohol when it comes to food, specifically cosmetics, of course, if they're completely toxic. But in, in regard to food, are there some classic things, for example, yeah. da dairy or even soy milk, which might, you know, increase certain hormones, plant-based, there was an issue at least with um, sure. other cancers or associations. Um, what, are you, what are you saying um, well, of, to leave out? Well, I think fats that can be um, the heterocyclic amine, so watch for things like grilling, saturated fats, so grilling meats. High, I say high plant-based, so plant-strong, nutrient-dense, organic as much as possible, very, very clean as far as No hormones in your, if you are going to eat meat products, um, free-range, grass-fed, organic meats, definitely decreasing dairy, eliminating sugar, eliminating caffeine, eliminating alcohol. And it's wonderful to hear that this can work as a, a standalone treatment option. You, one could go to you as a naturopathic doctor and say, I want the whole world of, of, of this kind of support and also as an absolute supplement Uh, to a, a Western approach, and you would work with, or any naturopathic doctor, I would think, would work uh, as complementary as possible to support the overall recovery of a patient. Um, is that a, a fair summary? Oh, yeah, I would like to see that more and more and more and more and more, quite honestly. I mean, I think that we all have a responsibility to focus on the patient and not let our, and and, and truly not let our turf war or, you know, sort of own scope of practice um, yes. divert from that. And that we, I think there's value in all systems of medicine. And sometimes it takes a village and the, you know, the art of working together and keeping that patient's best interest in mind is un 100% the way to go. 
you know, that is definitely things that I focus on. Yeah, there's a little bit of mistrust because perhaps out of a lack of, of education, how bene much more beneficial it can be for the patient. So each, you know, it's like a, a, a protecting its turf in a way, at least in Western medicine, uh, when the result could be much more effective if it was combined. It's not about eliminating Western medicine by any means. Um, no, not at all. Mm -mm. Yes. No, I think that... I think there's value, and then, you know, that's where the second opinion can come in. You know, we all, we all can have a little bit to, to, to offer and to add, and I think, once again, just keeping that patient in mind and that, that patient's best interest in mind is, is really the way to go. I know you're seeing a patient in just a few minutes again, and uh, you, you absolutely should, and we are glad you are. And I, I do want to ask, with the last question, Uh, social support, peer support, integrating the family. Once somebody is on that road to recovery and uh, is integrating a new lifestyle, how important is that and what advice do you give somebody? Well, I think it's extremely important. Um, I think that also there is this interesting thing that sometimes can happen where the um, family members and or friends get more worried and upset than the patient themselves. And so sometimes the patient has the, to take care of them too. Yeah. Yes. The family <laughs> dynamics, I'm, you know, I'm always sort of educating and, and sort of wanting to be able to assess that as well, because then the patient can turn around and having to be taking care of them or being sort of uh, energized by their stress and their worry and not being able to calm down enough to make informed decisions. And so it's, It's important to have support, but I also think it's that, you know, the patient needs to be empowered to set boundaries and, um, and to ask for things that they need, you know, now, then, now more than ever when that happens, quite honestly. And so the support is, on, I mean, I, you know, and I think pe other people that have gone through the process, that's where I've found that my patients get the most support, where they can talk to somebody who has had this particular chemotherapeutic drug or who has had this diagnosis or has gone through this particular treatment. That's been the sweet spot for them. And how do you do best that, uh, do, uh, do that best? If somebody needs to integrate their family into, into their road to recovery, um, do you teach the family? Do you have them come to your office? Like what is, what's the, the most successful way that you've seen that done? Well, for the most part, um, I've been able to talk to the patient in general. It's always an option. You know, I, sure. I have had that situation before where the family has accompanied, um, and we talk openly uh, about it after I have the patient sign a release form that we actually can have that conversation, um, and that's been helpful in some cases. And sometimes it's just about being able to give the patient permission to set boundaries um, or allowing them to know that they need to do so because they've got a lot to do. Their body has a lot to go through. Their body is going to, you know, just about to go through a lot and that strength is needed, and setting the boundary. And sometimes, quite honestly, it's one of their best gifts that they get from, um, from being diagnosed. You know, I, I, one of my patients, I, I can tell you a story, she had kind of a cantankerous relationship with her husband, and with her diagnosis, it, she was able to put her foot down because she knows she couldn't um, sort of withstand the, the treatment anymore, and he shipped up, and their marriage is better than ever. And so... It, you know, sometimes we're back up against the wall society, but, you know, we can always look for the silver lining, that's for sure. Yeah, and especially with, with the health changes, um, any family might or would benefit from that, right? If, if 
you can't do that in a toxic household, uh, whether it's the fridge or the, the energy between people. Um, so it has to be cleaned up really with everyone and everyone will benefit from it. Wonderful. Uh, can you repeat the site that you mentioned, the website? Um, as or What are the, a couple of the most helpful sites that somebody could now, after the hearing the show, uh, follow up with? Yeah, so, you know, once again, I really like the EWG.org. That's Environmental that, Working Group, um, having yep, both a list yep. of and then cosmetics. And AMP.org as well. So that's O-N-C, then A-N-P.org. You can find a specialized naturopathic oncologist in your area. Those are two of the websites that I really use. Wonderful. And, of course, yours, that's DrHollyLucille.com who joined us today from Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Holly, for making the time. Such a pleasure, such an important topic, and I'm sure we'll have you back soon. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Holly Lucille, naturopathic doctor, also a radio and TV host on integrative medicine, and the author of several books, including The Healing Power of Trauma, Comfrey, and Creating and Maintaining Balance, A Women's Guide to Safe Natural Hormone Health. Again, drhollylucille.com, her site. And that's this hour of an organic conversation on breast cancer, natural medicine on the road to recovery, uh, talking about what alternative treatment or complementary treatment options may look like and what other additional support may be out there for a breast cancer patient. We are switching gear but staying with the topic at least of healthy food, always without a healthy diet as the basis, as the foundation of human health. There's a huge element, a huge building block missing. So organic as much as we can and plant-based, unadulterated food as much as we can. And that brings us to what's in season, the consumer update from the produce doc. Uh, what is happening in the world of healthy fruits and vegetables this week, how to buy it, how to choose it, how to store it, and how to save some money not buying something that's totally disappointing. With that being said, here's what's in season. And with us is not the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Earl Herrick, but one of his amazing team members, Rodrigo, uh, who is an expert all in his own right. Rodrigo, do we have you with us? Yes. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So great. You could make the time. Thank you. How is it going in San Francisco at the dock? It's, it's going great. I, uh, You know, we're just seen a little bit of sun, and uh, just a few <laughs> minutes ago, I was able to see a rainbow. For us, it has the significance, uh, you know, of the happiness that we're finally going to have some dryness in the, <laughs> on, the on the fields, and it, uh, so it's making it look very good. Sunshine after the rain, uh, the rainbow, and uh, preparing ourselves to have some uh, back to normal supply in citrus. And we certainly needed the rain. We all know that drought all the way down to L.A. and even beyond. It has rained massively, we we can say, all the way up the coast, Oregon, Washington, certainly uh, usually not drought states, but the entire West Coast as the entire country. Uh, but we've been in a seven-plus-year drought, and this year was uh, phenomenal in terms of rainfall, but it has significantly impacted agriculture and production all throughout your buying regions, yes? 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, we love the rain, and it has been, you know, it's, it's a blessing. It's been great to have all this, uh, you know, all this water yeah. uh, filling our reservoirs uh, at the same time that it's bringing much-needed uh, humidity to, especially in the the the, the soil that's been so dry. Uh-huh, yeah. But like you said, there's a there's a short-term short-term um, difficulties that we you yes. know growers have to deal with. Sure. Well, you, you're the expert in, in several different produce items. What's your pick of the week for this week? What do we want to focus on? Well, I would say there are two items that are uh, standing out in terms of uh, how beautiful they are. Uh, in uh, They're right now in good supply, even though, we uh, just like we said, we've had so much rain. In, uh, is, uh, I would like to talk about mandarins and blood oranges. And uh, if I can, I will add a third one, which will be the caracara navel. Great. And how has the rain affected uh, the the production and the sweetness and the flavor? What should people mm-hmm. be aware of? Okay, so one of the issues that we see when it rains is that um, nobody can harvest. And uh, uh, when there's a heavy rain, like the one we have, uh, not only makes the whole harvesting very difficult and cumbersome, you can imagine you, you'll move in, you're moving through mud, uh, slows you down, and you have to, you know, be harvesting. All of these processes are, are manual. So for the workers, yes. for the people harvesting, uh, it makes it difficult and slow. But not only that, but the main reason why we nobody harvests uh, during the rain is because the trees absorb a lot of water, of course, and uh, the fruit is saturated with water. So it's not, uh, it's not going to behave in the way you expect, fruit that is harvested during the rain or shortly after the rain will have a very short shelf life. There's going to be a, a number of defects that are not evident immediately after harvesting, but they will express and they'll be noticeable a day after or as soon as that fruit is uh, is at room temperature, like is the case in uh, you know in in all pros departments when the fruit is on display it's at room temperature. That's the reason why we haven't had a harvest in many of these items. Now, the way work, growers work around is that they they harvest before the rain. There's a limit. You know, you can't have citrus for, for two weeks, but you can keep it for a few days. Uh, what is called, you know, in-between rains or uh, pre-rain fruit mm-hmm. in beans, and then pack after that. So from a consumer perspective, waterlogged produce, I'm sure, changes its flavor, too. When you talk about blood oranges and maybe caracara and mandarins, mm-hmm. where is it from right now and what should people do with it? How will they know it's from an area that was not picked during the rain or should they eat it quicker? What's your best consumer tip okay. on that? The easiest way to, to find out is to look at the fruit, each individual of uh, you know uh, of these um, oranges and mandarins, and uh, look for fruit that is free of any softness. Uh, any softness on the skin will be an indication of that this that fruit was harvested and packed during the rain. Great. Um, so softness is like when you when you find an area like a thumbprint where you can give where the skin gives a little. That's a classic sign of of rain harvest. That is a classic sign, exactly. Uh, you know, clear rot. Of course, any fruit with decay, uh, you want sure. to avoid. Those, uh, those are two main indications that the fruit was probably harvested and is going to suffer the effects of rain. So look for firm fruit, 
on the mandarins, uh, you know, I will say don't um, don't get don't fix yourself in a single variety. Uh, we have a wonderful beginning of the mandarin season with some fantastic satsumas, but you know that was uh, that was in December. Now we are in uh, you know uh, well into the winter mm-hmm. in uh, yes uh, well, February. It's a it's a different variety what you need to look for. Um, while you still, you know, there might be somebody out there that still can produce a satsuma. It's not the best eating fruit at this time. It was the best mandarin in December, but it's uh, in the world of mandarins always describe it as a, it's like a, it's a trip. And in this, uh, you travel through different varieties uh, through the season, always following the flavor. You want to follow the flavor and you will move from one variety to the next one. What's, what's the flow there when we start um, with October or November? Yeah, we start we start uh, in November with the with the satsumas, and then uh, we move into the uh, the merkets, the uh, um, tangos, which is a the tango actually is a is, is a natural mutation on a on a merket, mm-hmm. and it makes a, a, that natural mutation improves uh, the flavor on the tango. So it's a better eating one, Great. and it's absolutely seedless varieties. <laughs> um, gold nuggets uh, are going to be the next one. And then uh, maybe you're going to encounter some of the newest varieties. Uh, there are the all the the Chasta Gold and the Tahoe Golds that are very recent uh, varieties developed by by UC Davis and UC Riverside. And uh, we will end this uh, this trip through uh, through all the mandarins with the pixies, probably in March and April. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So usually, you know, Earl always speaks about talk to your produce guy. Many consumers still have a little bit of an issue with that, that I know of even. But try the produce in the store, right? Every produce manager will be happily cutting into one piece of mandarin or give you a slice to know that 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 pile that you're looking at, actually, whatever you did last week, that is the one you actually want to buy. And But if you like it and you buy two or three or four pieces, what's your best recommendation right now for mm-hmm. home use and storage? How long do they last? Okay, yes, just immediately refrigerated, put them, put them in your refrigerator. The optimal temperature usually is 45 degrees. Uh, don't, uh, don't leave them in the counter. The, you know, the kitchen is always a warm place. And outside, uh, it's not going to work either. So I would say immediately put them in your refrigerator. And um, they can last for about a week. You can be sure that you're going to have at least during that one week. Uh, if you, you know, put a t- you pay, pay attention and you selected the, the, the pieces of fruit that, were, that had the firmer skin, mm-hmm. I would say absolutely. One week, you should be fine. And... Um, if uh, you know you're going to encounter yourself in a situation where you have like five days of rain, well, buy early, keep them there for a week, and then after the rain is gone, a couple of days after that, you'll have um, fresh, uh, rain-free fruit again. And and of course, before you eat them, take them out an hour before just to let them warm up and develop their flavors yes. again. Absolutely, I forgot to mention that. Yes, it's a fruit. It's a, when it's a, at room temperature. Yeah, it's a, it has the best flavor. Where do you pull mandarins or citrus from right now? What's the region they're coming from? Just for people to be mm-hmm. dialed into that weather situation, maybe. Yes, right now we're seeing um, a lot of fruit coming from Kingsburg, uh, some from Porterville. And Fresno. Oh, really? Main, still, yep. still the wider San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're uh, very close to us. At the, 
Uh, Mandarins like that uh, region more than the, the southern districts. Uh-huh. Um, we should see some, but at the moment it's, it's more, mainly from this, this region. Great. Well, and this show is listened to in, in 135 countries around the world. So just know, if you can, where your citrus grower is uh, located at and what the conditions there are. But for the U.S., there is rain pretty much throughout the entire country. And um, it, it, you you will do well checking your produce really well, checking your mandarins and the skin really well, immediately put trying at the store, putting them in the fridge, letting them warm up, and then eating them within five or seven days. That's kind of the, is that a good summary? Yep. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> and that's Rodrigo, the expert on citrus. Th- such a pleasure to have you, Rodrigo. And uh, thank you for that intro with the rainbow. And yes, I know that actually the next week here in the Northern California, wider San Francisco area, the rain will lighten up. And it is the announcement that spring is just around the corner. We will have you back very soon with new exciting produce items as spring is coming. Very good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Rodrigo. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was a jam-packed hour off an organic conversation. Produce, organic fruits and vegetables, and natural medicine on the road to recovery, a review at least of what alternative or complementary treatment options are out there for women with breast cancer. I'm Helga Helberg, and I look forward to being back with another episode next week. Speak with you then. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate Producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, Anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y w-i-n-e dot com and Batiste Rum the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers more information at batisterum.com that's b-a-t-i-s-t-e r-h-u-m dot com For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is talkorganic. 
and we're also on Instagram. I am Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>